I want to begin by reassuring you that uh, the book is historical. Unfortunately, there are those today who would suggest that some of these stories from the Old Testament are but legends. But there's every evidence that the book of Esther actually occurred, the events of this book. It took place in the days of the captivity when Israel, as a nation, was under the bondage of Babylon and held in in captivity there. And during the days of that captivity, there arose a a man who became prime minister of the kingdom who uh, launched a Hitler-like attack upon the Jews and tried to stamp out these people, much as Hitler did in our own day. And God moved in a wonderful way to deliver his people through Esther, who came to the throne of this kingdom. And uh, in uh, working out the events of this book, you have one of the exciting stories of all time. But uh, it's more than that. It's more than simply a story of God's delivering power of his people, the Jews. In some senses, it's a rather unusual book to find in the Bible because the name of God doesn't even appear in it. There's no mention of heaven or hell. There's no mention of anything religious particularly. It's a kind of a story that you could find in the pages of the Saturday Evening Post. But here it is in the Bible. And and many have wondered why that is. The answer is that this is one of those marvelous parables uh, in the uh, scriptures that is a, a picture of what is going on in our own lives. And therefore, the thing that makes this book so interesting, so fascinating, is that this is our own story. And as we trace through the events of this book, we can see how accurately it traces what's happening to us and also what can happen to us as God is at work in the human heart. And it follows, therefore, the key that Paul gives us in the, in the New Testament when he says all these things happened as types for us and were written down for our instruction that we may understand the things that God is saying to us. And it, it's that, therefore, that provides the, the background to this little book. Now, the story is that of a, of a king and his kingdom, and how his, the queen, who was at his side when the story opens, was set aside by him, and he became uh, thereby uh, a lonely man, by his own decree, which he could not change, which he was powerless to change after he had issued it. And in his loneliness, he set about for a search for a new queen. And as we trace this story through, we'll find that it runs parallel exactly to the story of mankind. The book opens in a time of peace and blessing, when the king is throwing a great feast for his lords. And there are uh, hundreds and thousands of them there. The whole kingdom is represented, and the feast lasts for six months. How would some of you ladies like to cook for that? And uh, during this time, the king has nothing to do except to display the lavish glory and beauty of his kingdom. Now, the interesting thing is that in the scriptures, we discover that man was made to be a king like this. We've seen this pattern before. Uh, Each of us is given a kingdom over which to rule. Our uh, our soul is the king. 
including the faculty of mind, emotion, and above all, the will, the right to choose, so that man has a body which is the capital city of his kingdom, and he has an empire which includes all that he influences and touches around him. He has a king seated upon the throne of that kingdom in the will, and he also has, as we shall see in this story, a spirit which is portrayed in this story beautifully by the queen, the hidden member of our life, the inner life, and yet in some ways the deepest and most sensitive part of our being, the part designed to be in touch with God, where God himself was to dwell. Now, in the opening of this story, we get the record of how this king uh, had nothing but to had nothing to do but to display the glory of his kingdom just as man first appearing on earth had nothing to do except to display the glory of the god who indwelt him and to rule and dominion over the kingdom of the earth that was given to him but this king became lifted up in pride and he tried to pervert his to destroy his queen that is he tried to do disgrace her by summoning her to display her beauties before the whole court. And this is a picture for us, if you can trace the account through, of the fall of man. When man chose to exert and assert the supremacy of his reason over revelation in the, in the palace of the, of the spirit of man, which is symbolized by the queen in this story, God dwelt in unfallen man, in Adam as he was created. And it was there that the, the mind and emotions and will of men was guided by fellowship with a living Lord who dwelt in the royal residence of the Spirit. And man was to subject his reason to revelation, and as such he would fulfill his destiny and uh, uh, utilize the full powers of his, of his humanity to the purpose for which they were intended. But as you know, there was introduced into human life a principle that, cho that uh, tempted man to assert the power of his reason over revelation. And man began to choose what he felt was the right thing to do, what he wanted to do rather than what God wanted him to do. And, in th and when this happened, there came the fall, and the queen, the, the spirit, was shut away from man. Now you have this... Uh, portrayed for us in the opening chapters of Esther when the king issued a decree that the queen was to be deposed from the throne and that decree was in the law of the Medes and the Persians which the king could do nothing about once he'd issued it and he became then a lonely king. In his loneliness he began to search for a new queen and the proclamation was sent out through all the kingdom to bring all the beautiful maidens of the kingdom before him and one by one they appeared. And among them was a beautiful girl named Esther, who was one of the captives taken from Jerusalem and brought over into the land of Babylon. And with her was her cousin, Mordecai. Now, these two are the most important characters in this story. For Esther is a picture of the renewed spirit that is given to man in when he becomes a Christian, when he's regenerated, when his spirit is made alive in Jesus Christ. And uh, uh, this girl is under the influence and under the control of her cousin, Mordecai, who throughout this book is a picture for us of the Holy Spirit in his activities in, the life, uh, in, in our lives. 
And just this man's name means little man, that is, man in his humility. And he's a picture of the Spirit of Christ. I can't dwell on these details, but uh, if you'll accept my uh, my uh, uh, dis- the distinctions that I just give you here, I think we can trace this story through rather rapidly. In chapter 2, therefore, you have the Spirit received. When Esther, uh, under the control of, the, of her cousin Mordecai, is brought before the queen, the king, and he falls in love with her. What a beautiful girl she was. And he chooses her immediately to be his queen and exalts her to the second place in the kingdom. She becomes the queen. And in that sense, you have a picture of the what might be called the conversion of this king. When he receives the new spirit, and he doesn't understand that the Holy Spirit has come along with it, as many of us do not understand that at the moment when we first become Christian. But Mordecai is is there in the background, and we shall see how he becomes one of the uh, prominent characters of this story, working out to the utter deliverance of this kingdom. Now in chapter 3 of this book, we're introduced to the villain. And he's a very slimy character by the name of Haman, the Agagite. And as you trace this man's ancestry back through the scriptures, you discover that an Agagite is an Amalekite. An Amalekite was a member of that race of people, the descendants of Esau, whom God had said he would make war against forever, and whom King Saul had been ordered to completely eliminate, but in his mistaken folly had chosen to spare the king of the uh, the, the um, Amalekites, who was Agag, and uh, thus uh, perpetuate this uh, false force in Israel. And throughout the whole of the scripture, this tribe of people, the Amalekites, are representative of that force in in our lives, in our hearts, indwelling the human heart, that is continually opposed to all that God wants to do, which the New Testament calls the flesh. And whenever the Spirit of God begins to move to bless us, this thing rises up to oppose it and do all he can to hinder the work of God in a very subtle, clever, crafty way. Now, that's Haman. And in chapter 3, we read that immediately when Haman comes to the throne, is, uh, is on the throne, that there's an immediate uh, antagonism against Mordecai. These two are in direct conflict instantly because Haman was the enemy of the Jews. And when he learned that Mordecai was a Jew, he, he vowed to eliminate him from the kingdom. And uh, all through this account, we read over and over again that the thing that characterized Haman was that he was the enemy of the Jews. Now, why did he hate the Jews? In chapter 3, verse 8, it says, Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom, Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws so that it is not for the king's profit to tolerate them. In other words, here's a people who obey a different principle of life. And just as the spirit 
of man indwelt by the Holy Spirit is immediately subjected to a different rule of life, a different way of thinking, a different demand. So uh, these Jews were obeying a different principle. They were God's people. And immediately Haman is uh, is furious in his wrath against them. And there's a terrible uh, strategy develops. Now this man was very clever, just as the flesh within us is very clever in its attempts to keep us under bondage. And the story of this book is briefly the way God works to get the right man, uh, the wrong man out of control and the right man in. The reason we have problems as Christians, even after we've been born again, and we have so much of a struggle and difficulty, is because of the indwelling flesh, which opposes in subtlety and, and with clever strategy all that God is attempting to do in our life. And uh, uh, the, uh, the, the whole struggle is represented by that word in Galatians where we read the flesh uh, is opposed to the spirit, the flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh, so you cannot do the things that you would. Now, the uh, Haman immediately goes to work to persuade the king that the thing to do for his own benefit is to eliminate these people. And so he he is in power behind the throne, he controls the king, the king does what he wants him to do, And he causes the king to issue an edict to eliminate the Jews from all the kingdom. Just as the flesh continually works in our lives to uh, set aside, if it can, the control of the Holy Spirit and to cause us to walk continually in the old principles of self-serving, self-loving, self-satisfying, these principles that uh, are current in the world around. And we read that when, in chapter 3, that when the king, uh, when uh, Haman and Mordecai came face to face, this this enmity began. You find there the spirit resisted, and at the close of chapter three, uh, Haman has been prevailed upon the king to give him his his ring, the, the mark of authority and power, and to issue this edict which would destroy the Jews throughout the kingdom. And when he did. The king, in his mistaken folly, thought that Haman was his friend, and he invited him him to have a drink with him and to pat him on the back and to uh, uh, congratulate himself upon how clever they've been. Just as oftentimes in our own lives, when we think we've done something, uh, when we've perhaps answered back in sharpness and we've stood up for our own rights and we've uh, insisted that nobody walk roughshod over us, we have a feeling of uh, that we've acted very cleverly. We sit down to congratulate ourselves that we've gotten control of the situation. And all the time we're unaware that in our utter folly we have done the very thing that will continue to wreak havoc in our lives and make us entirely at the mercy of this deadly enemy within, the flesh. Now, in chapter 4 we have the beginning how God begins to move. Mordecai is grieved. And I wonder if any of you, all of you, have not had this experience of living with a grieved spirit. The first thing that the Spirit of God does when we begin to walk in the flesh is to create a sense of disquiet within, a sense of grief, 
And uh, it's deep within us. We hardly know how to put our finger on it. We know something's not right, but we don't know what it is. And Esther sees that uh, Mordecai is very distressed, but she doesn't know what to do. And she sends him a change of garments, hoping that'll take care of it. Just as many times uh, when we feel the distress of the spirit, the grief of the spirit because of our attitudes and our activities, we often think some superficial change will correct the matter. The problem, we think, is what we're doing, not what we are. But uh, Mordecai sends the, a messenger named Hatak, by the way, that means the truth, to convince Esther that she's up against a serious problem. And at last he unfolds to Esther the whole deadly plot of this cunning Haman, how he's out to destroy the Jews, including the queen herself, though Haman does not know that Esther is a Jew. And when uh, Esther hears this, she's dis disturbed. She doesn't know what to do. And Mordecai gives her further word and says, now you must go to the king. The problem is, you see, how to get the king to understand that Haman is not his friend. Just as the problem in our life is how to get us to really believe what God tells us, that these principles that characterize the flesh are not our friend. They are not on our side. That when we get uh, stubborn and belligerent and uh, difficult and impatient and all these qualities that characterize the flesh. We're not uh, working for our own interests. We think we are. We think these are the things that give us manliness and human uh, uh, humanity and strength of character and so on. But the problem of this book is a, is a king who is deluded, who doesn't know that his, that his worst enemy, or he, who thinks rather that his worst enemy is really his best friend. And so Esther is sent to deliver this message to the king. Now, this is a dangerous thing, because in the law of that land, it, for someone to appear before the king without being summoned was in itself a sentence of death. And Esther sends back word to Mordecai and says, you don't know what you're asking me to do. Don't you know? That in asking me to go before this king like this, you are literally sentencing me to death. The very moment that I step across that threshold, my life is forfeit. And you're asking me to die. And she says, she suggests perhaps there's some other way we can work this out. And in effect, Mordecai sends, sends back to her the word, don't try to outwit Haman yourself. If you think you can handle Haman yourself, you're bound to lose. If you think that you can outwit the strategy and the cleverness of this man, you're beat. You're beat. He'll outwit you. He'll outmaneuver you. He'll get behind you. He'll trap you. You'll end up whipped. And the great lesson of this book is uh, that which Romans 7 so valiantly attempts to teach us. If we think that we can handle the flesh by our willpower alone, we're whipped. This is one of the most difficult things to grasp about the Christian life. One of the most elusive things is this, is this uh, understanding that we must come to the end, we must die to our own ability to handle the flesh. We cannot do this. 
We can't do it by clenching our fists or gritting our teeth or signing New Year's resolutions or determining we're not going to act this way anymore at all. Esther must learn that the only one who's capable of handling Haman is Mordecai. And she must be willing to die to her own ability to handle this man. And the end of chapter 4 is a beautiful picture of Esther facing this. As she says, Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. I and my maids will also fast as you do, then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. And after three days and nights, which is certainly most significant, isn't it? The three days and nights when Jesus Christ lay in the grave on our behalf, dead for us. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace opposite the king's hall. And she is waiting in trepidation and fear, hardly knowing what will happen. But when the king sees her, in the beauty of the resurrected life, that's what it means, isn't it? On the third day as she comes, on the day of resurrection, in power and glory, his heart is captivated by her beauty. And he says, Queen Esther, ask me anything you want. I'll give it to you up to the half of my kingdom. And then we find a very strange thing taking place. Esther doesn't give, doesn't ask him for anything. Just ask him to dinner the next day to bring Haman along. And what's the meaning of that? I think there's nothing more significant than this because it means that we never can second guess what the Holy Spirit is going to do to handle a situation. We never know how he's going to work. The logical thing, the most obvious thing was for Esther to immediately say, look, You've, you've asked me to give, ask a request. What I want is the head of Haman on a platter. But she doesn't do that. She waits. And when she waits, as she waits, we discover something rather interesting happens. Haman is trapped by this. As uh, uh, Mordecai gives Esther directions as to what she's to do. She invites the king and Haman to dinner. And after they finish the dinner, the king asks her again what she wants. And she says, I want you to come back again tomorrow night for dinner. And so Haman goes out walking on air, absolutely, just completely thrilled with what has happened. He went back to his wife and his sons and he says, I knew that I was the king's fair-haired boy, but now I've discovered that I'm the queen's fair-haired boy as well. I've got them eating right out of my hand. And he begins to boast of his exploits. But we read, verse 9, Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart, but when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. And when the flesh within us gets boasting and arrogant and proud of our activities and our, our way, the way we stick up for our rights and the way we can cleverly maneuver and, and work things around the way we want them, there's one who remains totally unimpressed, the Holy Spirit. He's not at all impressed by our smartness, our cleverness. And this grates and eats at Haman's heart. 
And he says to his wife and children, his sons, he said, I cannot live, I cannot, I cannot stand it as long as this man Haman is in the cart. And his wife says, well then if he stands in your way, get rid of him, hang him. There's a gallows, erect a gallows, 75 feet high. That's how high 50 cubits is. And in the morning, go tell the king and hang him. Isn't that just like the flesh? Anything gets in your way, get rid of it. Don't let anybody stand in your right way. Move right on through. Assert yourself. Stick out your chest and walk right out in as king of the earth that you survey. And anything stands in your way, get rid of it. Well, it looks like for the moment now as though the wrong man is going to end up on the gallows, doesn't it? Mordecai. But the the plot is saved. And you know what turned the trick? Lobster, late at night. <laughs> at least that's what I think it was. For on that night the king could not sleep. And he gave orders to bring the book of the memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And he found how certain men, more, uh, Big Thana and Teresh, two of his own guards, had plotted against his life. And Mordecai had found it out and had reported it. And these two men were put to death as treason, uh, as traitors against the king. And this was recorded in the book. And it was by the book that deliverance began to come. For there the king discovered who his real friend was. As he read, he discovered that he had done nothing to honor Mordecai. And have you ever had that experience? Reading in the book of memorable deeds, the most memorable deed of all history, you've, you've learned that one took your place and died in your stead and fought off all the, all the powers of darkness and hell for your sake, laid down his life on your behalf, and it suddenly dawns on you, you've never done anything to honor him, never done anything to thank him. When the king comes to this point, he calls for anyone in the court to come in, and who is standing outside but none other than Haman? And Haman comes in, and the king says to him, what can the king do to honor the man in whom he delights? <laughs> and of course, the flesh always knows who that is. <laughs> well, who else would be the king's favorite, says Haman, but me. And so he thinks of the greatest honor that he could possibly enjoy. He says to the king, if you really want to honor the man in whom you delight, then give him your crown and your robes and your authority, everything that you are, and set him on your horse and appoint some honored prince to lead him through the city and cry out, This is the man whom the king delights. And the king said, Haman, that's wonderful. Go do it for Mordecai. <laughs> and I would love to have seen Haman's face right at that time. But the interesting thing is he does it. He does it. He goes through this grinding, humiliating thing. He takes uh, Mordecai, his hated enemy, and puts him on the horse and leads him through the city. Can't you see him going along there, crying out, This is the man whom the king delights to honor. And in his heart he's burning, burning with furious rage and envy against this man. But the point is, the flesh does it. 
It'll do anything if it's the price of survival. It'll do anything. It'll get religious. <laughs> It'll come to church. It'll sing in the choir. It'll preach. It'll pass out the hymn books. It'll take up the collection. It'll usher. It'll give a testimony. It'll do anything as long as it can survive. Down there this week at Newport Beach, Hal Riddle, a converted actor, Christian actor, wonderful Christian man, told me of being in a great church in New York City, church that's known over the nation, and member of a young people's band there that was out like we were at Newport Beach giving testimonies before groups. And he said the language was exactly the same. But he said the whole thrust of it was to the exaltation of the people who were giving the testimonies. There was a brassy brilliance about it that marked it as something not genuine. And he said, I, I learned there how the flesh can do everything religious and still be the flesh. And that's what you have here. But the story goes on that uh, the next day King Haman and Esther came together. Uh, king, the king and Haman and Esther came together. And there Queen Esther then reveals the perfidy of Haman. And the king is, is, is horror struck. He doesn't know for a moment what to do. He goes out in the garden and paces up and down. Just as in your life and mine, when the Spirit of God suddenly reveals to us that this thing that we have been protecting and building fences around and excusing in ourselves is the great enemy of our souls. And we realize that a drastic change is called for. Now, it's a drastic thing to kill a prime minister. But that's what this, that's what Queen Esther was asking for. But the king knows that there can be no deliverance in his kingdom till this man is ended. And so he gives the order, hang him on the gallows prepared for Mordecai. And Haman is hanged on that gallows. And in chapter 8, on that day, on that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, and Mordecai came before the king, now in the place of power, the fullness of the Spirit. In chapter 2, you have the Spirit received. In chapter 3, the Spirit resisted. In chapter 4, the Spirit grieved. In the last part of chapter 4, the Spirit quenched. But now you have the fullness of the Spirit. And when Mordecai comes to the throne of this empire, everything begins to change. Instantly another decree goes out. A decree that allows the Jews to fight against their enemies and to slay them. Just as in Romans 8 we're told that the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has now been issued that sets us free from the law of sin and death. And when we act in obedience to that, standing against these enemies that are at work in our own life, refusing to acknowledge them, we discover that the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus lifts us up and gives us victory and power over the pla in the place where we were once defeated. And at the end of the book, you discover that you have the same king and the same kingdom, just as you are the same person, living in the same home, among the same people, working in the same shop, but a different 
government, a different management in control. Mordecai is now on the throne. And the whole story of this book is captured in one verse in the book of Romans. It says, what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own Son in the likeness of sin and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be, might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, Haman-minded, but after the Spirit, Mordecai-minded. Our Father, we thank you for this beautiful story. Pray that we may grasp it and understand it. May this book speak to us and teach us what is happening in our own life, that we may discover the victory that this book sets before us in our own life today. In Jesus' name, amen.